Mr. Brian Holdsworth, in regards to the sense of the sacred, how do we lose it? What have we lost along the way? How can we recover? You've been speaking about this subject and thinking about this subject for over half a decade. You've covered subjects such as liturgical music. How do we dress at mass? Liturgical um, architecture or church architecture. You, you've talked about these things and even social topics. So what have you found along the way in regards to the diminishing value that people place on the sacred in society and in the church? Yeah, well, thanks. I mean, that's a good question. Asking the question, how have we lost our sense of the sacred, I think, assumes, and rightly so, that, that we don't really understand what sacred means really anymore. Um, and, and so I think that's probably the place to start is to, to, to inform ourselves uh, of what, what is meant by this. And this is a tradition of the church, obviously. And so we have to kind of immerse ourselves in the history of the church's thought on this. Um, and it's funny, even as recent as late 19th century and early 20th century, uh, this language gets used in a way uh, in, in magisterial documents um, that seems to assume that the reader understands this distinction in, in these terms. Um, but then later on, up, up into contemporary times, it's, it, it doesn't get used much at all in a way that, that seems to um, take, take granted uh, or, or take the reader's understanding for granted um, the way that it, it was. Um, and so I think that that's where we need to start. And there's a lot of ways you can define holiness and, and, and sacredness um, and sanctity. Uh, one way that has been really helpful for me as, as a, a reflection, as it has informed my, uh, my thoughts on, on culture and liturgy and, and, and these kinds of things, is to be set apart. And the reason that has always stood out for me is because when I first read some, it was some sort of etymological definition of that term. And I thought, well, that's not what holiness means, is it? I thought I, I always just sort of equated it with moral goodness as just a general broad category. And I even had a conversation with somebody recently who is a well-informed Catholic and, uh, and she was conflating because we were talking about virtue and virtue ethics and distinguishing it from, from sanctity and holiness because, uh, sanctity is or holiness is a virtue but it's not virtue itself right it's 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 a category within virtue um you can be virtuous you can be good in many respects and not be holy um there are virtuous people throughout history that that did not have the the supernatural virtue of faith right um they weren't christians they didn't they didn't have revelation so much of that tradition comes to us from from pagan Greeks, right? Like Aristotle is uh, is sort of the master of virtue ethics, but he likely wasn't holy. Uh, we don't consider him a saint. Um, we don't know what his eternal fate was, but um, he's not he's not honored in the church's tradition as a model of holiness, um, even though he was likely very virtuous in in, in many respects. Uh, so the sacred is that which is set apart by and for the worship of God. Um, that to me was kind of a groundbreaking uh, understanding and in a way that really shifted my, my approach to, to these questions. Um, and and you, it, it helped frame for me also the story of salvation history because what were, what were the Israelites? They were a holy nation. 
And what made them holy? They were set apart from the rest of the world. God took them out of Egypt and set them apart. And Egypt is literally a place in a moment in history. I mean, this is a temporal reality. He, was, he took them out of Egypt specifically. But Egypt can also be seen metaphorically, I think, as the world. He set them apart as a holy nation to make them holy. And what was it that he proceeded to do with them was to teach them to worship properly, right? He, he, he brought them out of the wilderness. This was the cry to Pharaoh, let my people go so that they will worship me, so that they can worship me in the desert. It wasn't so that, you know, we can be morally good, although that's obviously part of it, to worship in righteousness and truth, but specifically to become holy, right? To, to worship properly. Whereas the world worships incorrectly, the world worships idols, right? That's what everyone else does by default. But Israel will worship the one true God and he, he will teach them how. And that's what he proceeds to do in the wilderness. He, he teaches them, uh, well, he, he first constructs this very elaborate scheme of worship um, that is very uh, sensory, very textured and punctuated by objects and things and places and tabernacles and the Ark of the Covenant and the tent of, of meeting and all of these things, um, linens and vestments and materials of gold and beauty, right? Um, and richness. And the whole point is that um, we ourselves being material beings, we don't just worship merely in this sort of ethereal kind of um, non-material way, right? We, we're not trying to find release from the, the material world. I mean, that's a Gnostic kind of concept. That's a, that's a platonic concept, right? That we're trapped in this, this crude matter and that our ultimate fulfillment is to be released as merely spiritual beings. We're not angels. We're not merely spiritual beings. Our experience of reality is supposed to be material in nature. And that's true for worship as well, right? So God constructs and, and teaches the Israelites in this elaborate scheme of worship. And then, of course, we 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 know the rest of the story and that they go through these undulations of of harmony with God and prosperity being the fruit of that. And then they fall away from God. And what is the thing that they, that always uh, precipitates that falling away is the worship of idols. Right. They, they start to worship false gods again. Um, and so they lose their holiness. They become intermingled with the world. It often happens through literal um, intermingling, right? Like you look at uh, a Solomon who had all of these wives, many from um, from um, from the neighboring non-holy nations, right? And it was his wives that, that convinced him to start worshiping false gods, right? Um, and this is why God, in so many, at so many points where the Israelites were entering into their kingdom, into their promised land, he says, do not marry with these these other nations do not intermingle with them in, in these ways if you do they will convince you to worship their their false gods and that's precisely what happens right so they they fall away from god they lose their sanctity and as a result the consequence is they they lose their prosperity right all the things that god has promised them even their their promised land in some cases as they're exiled to babylon right so so the sacred is is that which is is set apart for the worship of God. Now, if you fast forward to contemporary times, as this relates to us, how did we lose our sense of the sacred? Uh, I, I would say that whatever it was that happened in the 20th century, um, these, these um, programs of reform 
Uh, I would say that either they they went wrong in places where it, it's it's having these deleterious effects, like places like where I live, like Canada or the United States or or much of Western Europe. Um, either it went wrong or we're still going through the, the, the struggle of that reform and we haven't really realized the full fruits of it. And, and hindsight and, and history will only be able to tell us, but we can sort of speculate at some of the things that aren't working at this moment that, that we're in. And I think in part, it's again, it's this sense of the law. But, you know, coming into the 20th century, there was this sense that uh, we do need liturgical reform. We need something needs to change because something isn't right about uh, among if you if you survey your average Catholic, they're they're not quite getting it right. And I didn't live through that time period, so I can't call from experience. But what I've been told by people is that um, there was there was a problem with um, not so much with the external. Right. So we had this beautiful Catholic culture, beautiful architecture, beautiful art, beautiful music, beautiful theology as well. But there was a problem in that it wasn't being internalized properly. Right. So you could get a Catholic to recite um, beautiful music or, or beautiful theology. They, could, they, were, they were catechized. They could recite something like the Baltimore Catechism. But was it affecting their heart? Did they love God? Did they understand what they were doing, right? Or was it all just sort of going through the motions? Um, relaying this to maybe what Jesus said about the Pharisees, that they were whitewashed tombs, right? They were beautiful on the outside, but just empty and dead on the inside. Um, what I'm told is that this is an accusation that is made of, of sort of Catholic culture in general leading up to the 20th century. Very beautiful on the outside, but kind of empty on the inside. And so many people like, like, Dom Garager and uh, Romano Guardini and Pope St. Pius X, all of these people were part of this thing called the liturgical movement, right? Which was to try and um, renew our interest in our understanding and our practice of liturgy, of the sacred, right? So that it wasn't just beautiful on the outside. We, we weren't just performative, but we actually, it, it affected us in such a way that we became holy ourselves and we learned to love God as a result. That's, that's the aim of all of this, obviously. Um, so we recognize there's the external and there's the internal and there's something lacking on the internal. Unfortunately, what seems to happen in the reforms, especially after the, the, the Second Vatican Council, specifically the liturgical reforms that we saw in, in, in the Latin Rite, was that all the attention was paid on the external. So they said, you know, we noticed there's something wrong with the internal. So let's just fix the external. Well, isn't the problem with the internal? It's not that we, we think that there's anything wrong with the external. There's nothing wrong with Catholic culture per se or our Catholic theology. It's that people aren't internalizing it. So what can we do to help them internalize it? Um, so we just kind of stripped away the external. Um, we stopped insisting upon things like good standards for art and music and architecture and these kinds of things. Things that were magisterially um, taught about and, and protected um, he, again, returning to people like Pope, Pope St. Pius X, I mean, he wrote beautifully and authoritatively about things like sacred music and sacred art. And these things are, are also discussed authoritatively, magisterially in the Second Vatican C Council in documents like Sacrosanctum Concilium, right? They, they're very intentional about making sure that these things are done well and in a certain way. And they specifically endorse certain things like Gregorian chant, right? Um, but 
for some reason, the way that this all played out in the real world, in the, in the, in the, in the Catholic Church that we experience when we go to Mass on Sundays, was it all just got stripped away. Um, we lost our standards for, for music, um, for architecture, for art, and the expression of, of how it is that we worship God. And so when we stripped all of that away, we also didn't replace it with anything either. So if the point was to reform the external, we didn't really do that. We just kind of like just, just demolished and then walked away from the rubble as if that was going to fix everything. And, and I would say that it hasn't because most Catholics, I would say, haven't been reformed. They don't know how to worship better as a result of that loss of, of those externals. Um, so we haven't gained the internal and we lost the external. And that sort of seems to be where we're at. And maybe that's the point where God can build us back up. I, I, I don't want to be utterly cynical about it. Maybe now something can be re rebuilt. Um, but in the meantime, I'd, I'd say that that's been sort of the culprit for our loss of the sacred. So, Mr. Holworth, based upon what I was hearing you saying about the what God was doing with the Israelites, he set them apart. So it seems like that set apart, taking them out of Egypt, putting them in the desert, it seemed to be some sort of prerequisite for them to pursue holiness. And this pursuit of holiness is also connected to worship. He gave them these things. But as I, I was also hearing that when you're speaking that God, this is his initiative to give them this, this space and give them this worship. And so it was up to them, it seems, to internalize that. And I, I wonder if the struggle of internalization Owning that, owning that journey, owning that pilgrimage, owning that path to pursue holiness and sacredness and, and uh, virtue that comes with that was why um, they lost those things that God gave them and rather they pursued sin. Right? So I was wondering if you can comment just on that relationship between space and worship and sin. So the space, the dimension of space, again, like he was taking them out of the world, creating space for them, kind of a buffer between them and the world. And why? Right. Because, well, again, the world is who, who, where is God's kingdom? Right. This is a theme that comes up in the New Testament. Obviously, this is what, what Jesus was, was preaching and, and bringing. It's not of this world. Right. Why not? Be well, because the world through our sin, through Adam's sin, became fallen and compromised. Right. And frankly, prior to the incarnation was the domain of the demonic, right? Who rules this world is Satan, right? And, and we get glimpses of this throughout scripture, especially when Satan tempts Jesus, right? What does he offer him? He offers him the wealth of the kingdoms of this world, right? Just bow down and worship me and I'll, I'll give you all of this. Well, he's not lying. He can give him all of this because he actually does rule all of these kingdoms, right? The, the gods, the false gods that they are worshiping are actually demons. And this is a theme that, that comes up both in scripture and the Psalms and then the church fathers. Athanasius said that the gods of other nations are, are demons. Um, so the world in this sense is this broken, fallen, evil world, right? And if you want to create a holy nation, you have to extract them out of that and create space between them and that world. And whenever they come into contact with that world, there's always this risk that they are going to fall back into the world, right? And so that's why God always says to them, don't intermingle with these people. They are, they serve, they are members of this kingdom, the kingdom of the world, the kingdom of the world of the devil, of his kingdom, right? Um, I want you to just be set apart from that to be made holy. 
Um, and so he gives them the law. He gives them the, the, the system of worship um, to, to, to make them holy, to make them perfect, to make them like him in, in many respects. But the law at that point, as we know through Christianity, uh, isn't what saved, right? It was sort of a, a mode of obligation, a mode of, of obedience to God. Um, but it wasn't ultimately going to bring the, their, their ultimate fulfillment and, and the, kind of the sanctification that we, we speak of as Christians, right? That, that is possible because of the incarnation. So there were limits to, to what the law could do. Um, but when they sinned against the law, that, that meant that this sort of place that he had elevated them to, this sort of level of sanctity, meant that they would then fall away and kind of fall back to the world. And that the primary sin over and over again, again, is idolatry, right? They started worshiping other gods, and that was what was most offensive to God. And they lost that harmony with God as, as a result. Um, the internalizing that could take place there, I don't know if the law was ever meant to be internalized by the Israelites. I think that that was a phase of salvation history for which they were they were being taught what is true, both by revelation and by experience of practicing the law. Um, and so in that practice, in, in the habituation of what is good and true, I mean, you, you can be reformed by that and, and it can be sort of internalized. But one of the best, I would say, metaphors for the contrast between the, the old covenant, the covenant of, of the law, the Mosaic law, and the new covenant, the covenant of Jesus, is that uh, is, is sort of the, the comparison between like a child and a grown adult, right? So, and and there is a progression here. There's a, there's a historical progression and, and a, a maturation of a people that is taking place here, right? In the same kind of way. So a child, how does a child be good? Well, it's not by necessarily uh, developing virtues of their own and strengths of their own because they're, they don't have those yet. They're learning and they, they're, they're growing. They, they're growing into strength and into maturity. So there's certain weaknesses and things that they don't have to make that possible. So what makes a child good is obedience, obedience to their parents, obedience to the law and the rules that their, their parents set out to, to, to govern their behavior and their relationships to each other, to siblings, to their friends, and to their parents, and to God as well, for that matter. Um, they, they're catechized. They're taught to to pray certain ways. They're taught to they're they're put through sacramental preparation. All these kinds of things, right? So a child is good when they simply obey the rules, right? But eventually, as they grow into maturity and as they see how those rules apply to the real experience of life and and, and the the cause and effect and the consequences of good behavior and bad behavior, how one will produce vice and the other will produce virtue, then it starts to, and as they, they grow rationally, they can start to make sense of it and interpret this and, and to really truly believe that this is what is good and true and right. And then it becomes internalized. That's how it becomes internalized, right? And so the same is true in the new covenant. Jesus says, yeah, the law is, is always going to be the law, but I don't call you slaves anymore. You're not just these obedient people who just do what I say. You're my friends. You are sons and daughters who are going to be adopted in through my sonship to the Father. And as a result, you're going. this is a relationship of love now, not mere slavish obedience. And so that's how it's supposed to be internalized for us in the new covenant, those of us who are participating in the church, right? So if it starts to look like it's merely becoming legal, uh, obedience, whether it be in worship or in moral uh, prescriptions, well, yeah, that becomes a problem because we as Christians are supposed to be people who love God 
it's supposed to be a, a relationship of affection and, and obedience out of love for God, not merely because we're afraid of um, losing uh, our prosperity or losing our material uh, welfare or something like that. Um, and so, so that's how I would relate it to to that story in Exodus. And one thing is that one thing that the Jews seem to have, or God seems to be instilling in them, or building them in them, is culture, right? And I think one thing that Christ does, he brings part excellence is the the kingdom of God. I think he's speaking about culture there, and through the use of solemnitude, you know, the kingdom of God is like this, it's like that. It gives us an image of well, what is this culture like? And some business professionals they would say that yeah, depending upon the size of your organization, culture to build a culture of uh, traditions and practices, your own language. It does take like a minimum of three years. Values. Yeah. Yeah. It takes a minimum yeah. amount of time depending yeah. upon how big a culture is. As, as you know, being a business owner. Mm. Um, so, mm-hmm. but one thing, so moving forward, I saw one thing I, I was always, I've always been impressed by with, you know, uh, Charlemagne and Christendom and Pepin the Short and these guys was the liturgical reforms or the Carolingian Renaissance. And one thing that they were very big on was culture. They really believed in reclaiming what they thought was their inheritance, the, the Roman rights, and, and even investments, and just everything that went along with that. They thought that was just something that, that solidified their culture and unified their people. And not only that, they wanted to export it to different places because they believed in it and, and what it could do. Um, and so there's some sort of some political motivations as well, but you know, aside from those. I, I wanted you just to comment on that because you you you've talked a lot about culture again for over half a decade. How can you bridge this conversation in the sense of the sacred? Uh, what we've lost along the way, and you've you've already talked about how I can reclaim it a little bit. Can you bridge everything, all this together, with culture? So. Culture is a word that I think can be defined in a few different ways, but one of the definitions that's been really helpful for me is embodied religion. And I think that that's counterintuitive for a lot of people. We don't tend to think of religion as being essential to culture, especially because we now live in quote unquote secular culture, right? And which is actually a contradiction of terms because right within the etymology of the word culture is the word cult, right? Cult of worship. Right. And so and I don't mean cult in the sense of like manipulative, secretive organizations that want to control you. I mean, in the the very classical sense, cult just meant like religious worship. Right. And so inherent in the in the concept of of culture is cult of worship. Um, And so the the definition that I like, again, is embodied or embodied religion or you could say embodied creed, maybe um, that it works hand in hand with creed with doctrine, with belief, right? Um, because we as human beings, we are we are rational beings, we're rational creatures, that's one of our greatest attributes, but we are also passionate and, and sensitive beings, right? And so in this relationship that we have with God, there's a rational dimension about it. He, he in revelation reveals what is true about himself to help us. And he reveals what is true about ourselves in order to help us, how it is that we are supposed to behave, how it is that we are supposed to love our neighbors as ourselves. Um, Christ went out and preached sermons of an ethical nature to help us live well, right? To help us live in accord with his, his vision for, uh, for humanity and, and, um, and for our relationship with God. 
but also um, there's the dimension of worship, right? Because it's it's not merely knowledge of truth, it's love of God as well. We're supposed to love God uh, as well as our neighbors. And how is it that you inspire people to love? Well, you you stir up their affections, right? We're not merely just sort of these like Star Trek Vulcan rational characters. We, we have hearts, right? And, and our hearts need to be... Um, conformed to God. Like that's the thing about David. If we go back to the Old Testament, right? Um, he was one of the few who really did internalize um, what what God was revealing. He he was a man after God's heart. And that's why God loved him so much, um, even in spite of the infidelity of, of the people and even his offspring, right? Um, he, he allowed the Davidic lineage to carry on because of his love for David, because David was had, had the heart for God. Um, and so, Yes, we can have creed and we can have doctrines and we can have teachings and we can catechize, but especially as this relates to children in my own experience as a father, I can teach them all of these things, but unless I give them something that will stir up their affection for these truths, the likelihood of them internalizing it and adopting it themselves is going to be jeopardized. And so how do we do that? Well, we do it by the embodiment of creed. How does creed express itself uh, in a way of life, right? Um, well, what is a way of life? A way of life is punctuated by things like music, by art, by leisure, by the way that we do things, by the way that we we admire things, the way that we uh, give expression to awe towards things, right? And in the old covenant, God was doing both of these things. He was giving them truth in the commandments and in the law. And he was giving them culture by just saying, here's exactly how you do it. I want vestments that look like this. I want drapes that look like this. I want them to be this size. I want the tent to look like this. I want these materials to be used. Like he was just itemizing exactly how it was done. And then you fast forward to this process of maturation through salvation history. By the time you get to um, the Christian covenant, the covenant with Jesus, the new covenant, well, we now have this new creed or this this elaboration of the creed the fulfillment of the old law that we are to internalize we are to adopt as our own as sons and daughters of god and then we're to celebrate it and we're to worship god and in, in right worship as a result so how does that give expression how is how is that embodied well it's embodied through all of the things that have been part of the great christian tradition Things like the the music that have been uniquely um, um, incarnated by Christian Christian the Christian creed, um, uniquely um, like art that has been uniquely incarnated, uh, architecture that has been uniquely incarnated, and yes, some of these things have been adopted from the outside. A, a lot many people will point out things like a basilica, for example. A basilica is a common Christian architectural design that was adopted from the old meeting houses of of ancient the ancient world, like ancient Rome. Yeah, that's true. So we have recognized that there are some things that are good um, in the uh, existing cultures, and then we've consecrated them and sort of set them apart uniquely for the worship of God because we recognize their inherent goodness. And we said, this is a higher thing that can then be used for uh, uh, elevating our minds to the supreme thing, which is God, right? Um, and so when we talk about the sacred as distinct from other, other considerations like the profane, um, the sacred is is those things which uh, are elevated, are higher, um, which elevate our own thoughts and our own minds and our hearts to to that which is higher. It, 
towards the supreme thing and to withdraw from the things that are lower. And by lower, I don't mean that they're necessarily bad or crude. They're just not of a higher nature, right? So like folk culture is good. Um, songs designed for revelry and celebration and birthday parties and things like that and wedding feasts, those are good, but they're not sacred, right? And so when it comes to worship, we need to appreciate that which is sacred. We need to withdraw from the lower things for a time and lift our hearts and minds to God um, out of justice and out of love for him. Mr. Brian Holsworth, thank you for this catechesis and instruction on the return to the sacred. Thank you. You're welcome. Thanks for having me, David. <laughs>